And welcome again to American Dreamtime. I'm Robert Doc Barham, and we have another exceptional guest today. Mr. Mario Hostios is with me, and he's here to talk about a number of things that, uh, well, Mario, uh, tell me just very briefly, if you would, about your work. Yeah, uh, happy to, and thanks for having me on the show, Doc. Uh, so, you know, my, my passion, the thing I just can't seem to, seem to shake is uh, working as a speaker, as a coach, as a trainer. Uh, I'm a student of things. I, I like tackling problems that other people can't seem to solve. And, uh, and I'm a teacher of those things once I learn how to do them. So uh, physical culture type stuff from uh, exercise, uh, how physiology is impacted by uh, psychology, that relationship, uh, how to get the most out of what we are. And I'm not afraid to look outside of the bounds of conventionality in order to find it. Okay. Mario, what, tell me the story behind how you got into this, how you, what started you on this path? Ah, okay. I could, I could write that for you on the back of a gum wrapper. My back hurt. (laughs) (laughs) So, so to flesh it out a little bit and add add a little more color to it. So I was about 20 years old and, um, out of the blue, uh, uh, unplanned, uh, you know, I just started to have this incredible back pain uh, that scared me, really. I, I wasn't sure what was causing it. It was a disruption to my daily life, and I was struggling to find an answer to, uh, uh, to solve it, to heal it, to get past it. And um, it forced me to look beyond everything I thought I knew about how that worked, uh, and it got me into all of the uh, elements around physical culture, uh, into acupuncture, uh, and other things I could not have even imagined. Um, a lot like what we're all experiencing in the spring of 2020. <laughs> you mean in the sense of we're dealing with something that we didn't really uh, foresee? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, pain and disruption to our daily lives, right? Unforeseen pain and I think in so many ways right now, we're all sort of, uh, we've been gut punched or sucker punched or maybe even kind of kicked in the uh, you-know-whats, and we're having to adjust on the fly to what's happening, this disruption of our daily lives, the uncertainty around it, and then calling into question what we thought we knew. Um, I would... What are the different kinds of of pain that, uh, that you have been observing, you know, like was you check in with the news or go about your day. What are those different kinds of pains specifically? Uh, Probably the biggest pain that I would say I see is uh, the the trust. It's like the death of trust or trust on life support uh, because we have in the main really trusted our authorities and uh, be they governmental or uh, scientific and medical to handle things for us. And right now it kind of looks like they're struggling to do that. And so that trust that we've had between them is being strained in many, many ways. And so I see in a lot of cases, uh, people just kind of depressed down and feeling a little bit lost about where to put their trust. So you feel like that the, the trust has been lost, the trust has been broken? And you, you feel that in what ways has the trust been broken? Do you mean like psychologically as one of them, which affects people emotionally, but can you be even more specific in the, the different 
places where you feel that trust is trust has been broken and with whom exactly? Sure, sure. So uh, uh, play it out. How does it affect your personal life? Right. There's the uh, the old adage: when your neighbor loses his job, it's a recession. But when you lose yours, it's a depression. Right. Because then it's personal. It's real. It's visceral to you. And uh, what I see with people now is that in the main, we want answers, we want certainty, we want clarity. And from the news, we don't really get that. Now, yes, there are uh, narratives that are and agendas that are being expressed in various outlets of the news. But the one thing they have in common right now is they don't really have a, re- a reassuring message or any certainty of action. And so I think people are really feeling the anxiety around, I don't know if they're on top of this. And that's a problem because I know I'm not on top of this. So what do I do? That's just one example. What are, the, what, um, what are some of the things that, well, you know what? Let me ask you this. You've been fairly successful as a trainer mm-hmm. and you have uh, spent a lot of time and a lot of energy, a lot of focus on getting healthy and staying healthy. And, and uh, I would say you are far and away, you are above average health. That's part of your, part of your, uh, your ethic too, I believe, mm-hmm. that you want to be as healthy as possible. For those who, yeah, for those who you walk your talk, for those who want to follow along that path, right? What, how did you get from that immense pain from the accident to where you are today? I mean, what are some of those specific steps that you took? Um, there, there were several. One of them was uh, uh, opening my mind to how acupuncture could work and could function, and then following that thread into all of the exercises and practices that are congruent with it, things like yoga, tai chi, what actually is happening uh, from a level of chemistry or physics when a person is doing that stuff successfully uh, to satisfy my own curiosity about it. Uh, Biochemically, things that we can do to support uh, our vitamin and hormone levels. Uh, I just put these things to the test. If there were just a couple things that I would offer to the listener right now, actionable information that they could take and make use of today a uh, couple things come to mind. One is what I call the power bath. And you just need three items for it. One is Epsom salts. Another is baking soda. And the third thing is uh, hydrogen peroxide. And you just throw those three ingredients in a half tub of warm water and soak in the tub for 40 minutes. Let's say that again. Epsom salt, mm-hmm. hydrogen peroxide. Yes. And baking soda. And you baking soda. You mean like? Go to the grocery store, find yourself in the pharmacy, find yourself a bag of Epsom salt mm-hmm. and some hydrogen peroxide. The brown, Usually it's the brown plastic bottle of hydrogen peroxide. Is it going to be the, the normal grade of hydrogen peroxide? What's the grade of it? Great question. Yes, 3%, 3% peroxide is the common grade that you'll find in the store, and that works just fine. And then the third element is baking soda. Mm-hmm. Now, is there any, any evidence that this bath, what does the bath do? So uh, to go by, by each ingredient, 
The Epsom salts have magnesium and sulfur in them, two minerals that most people tend to be deficient in. Uh, magnesium does many, many things in the body. And when you have enough of it, you have a noticeable improvement in mood, energy, and sleep quality. It's also very supportive of immunity. Uh, the sulfur, if uh, the listener is familiar with the uh, buzz about collagen right now and how collagen is helpful for maintaining youthful skin, youthful joints, et cetera, the sulfur is a precursor to that, if you will. So uh, you're getting both of those things through the skin when you soak in the bath. From the baking soda, the baking soda is alkaline, so it alkalizes the metabolism. Most people tend to run slightly acidic. And then the peroxide is a water molecule with one extra oxygen attached to it. And so soaking in uh, or adding some of that peroxide to your bath helps to raise your oxygen level in your body. So by doing this, you're improving uh, levels of two minerals most people are deficient in. You're alkalizing your metabolism and you're increasing the oxygen level in your blood. And well, yes, there are studies that, that uh, can be uh, shown that this is demonstrably effective. So you, you take your clothes off, you draw a hot bath, you put the ingredients into the bath, you, you put yourself into the bath mm -hmm. and with the ingredients that you just mentioned in the bath. How does the body um, get the ingredients? Right through the skin. So what actually, can you talk a little bit about what actually happens with, you say, through the skin? Is it through the, the permeability of the skin, through the pores? What's, what's actually going on? Yes, 100%. In the same way that a person can use uh, a medicinal patch, uh, you'll see people sometimes have a, a women maybe have an estrogen patch as a way to deliver medication through the skin. Uh, uh, it's the exact same idea. Your skin is an organ and it can absorb stuff. That's one of the reasons why uh, uh, people, when they're handling hazardous chemicals, uh, are always using gloves or, you know, putting on a, a face mask, hazmat suit. You don't want to absorb that stuff unnecessarily. These are three things that will largely benefit you uh, to absorb because most people are deficient in them. And you just soak in there. I'll, I'll even give you the ratios. You want two cups of Epsom salts, one cup of baking soda, and um, 32 ounces of peroxide, so one, one big bottle. That's a great place to start. And I have been, uh, I, I was surprised at how well it worked uh, when I started doing it myself, as well as recommending it to my people, the, uh, the restorative and supportive effects it had for mood, energy, sleep quality. It so was you, you say it, you, it worked, and you just said it worked, so it was restorative. What happened? Oh, well, if you what want and over what period of time, like you were taking how many baths over what period of time and you really began to notice changes like what, you know, what, give me the details. Three days. Uh, the, the way I, I uh, uh, like to do it myself is to take a three day weekend, do it Friday night, Saturday night and Sunday night. And so uh, by doing this, uh, you often notice after the first or second bath that you just sleep better. You sleep throughout the night. You go to bed on time. You wake up on time. You're very refreshed. Uh, mood. Uh, magnesium is uh, correlated to depression. Severe magnesium deficiency can exacerbate the symptoms of depression. Elevate or restore the magnesium, and the depression can be largely ameliorated. So what we see here is that a behavioral or emotional or cognitive um, uh, condition Israel uh, has a mineral influence. 
restore that mineral, and now you are supporting getting out of that situation. Uh, also, in males, um, there's a mechanism that indirectly uh, magnesium on the skin will convert indirectly into testosterone. So if your testosterone is somewhat depleted, uh, you, you'll find that, the, that getting uh, the Epsom salt baths will help boost it up. And an indication of this is you wake up in the morning with a morning erection again. Ah, okay. So you end up getting morning wood again after three days worth of bathing. In the, what's interesting to me in part is that these ingredients are the kinds of things that I think a lot of people, um, well, they wouldn't imagine they'd have the effect that they do, that you're, that you're claiming that they do. And the ingredients themselves are really inexpensive. This isn't like some uh, expensive pharmaceutical or something like that. Uh, are there any cosmetic effects to taking these baths? Like uh, what happens to your skin? Uh, after, how, by the way, how long is one, it, do you recommend someone to be in the bath? About 40 minutes, 40 minutes. So a 40 so minute hot bath is a temperature wise. Should it, what should the temperature, what do you recommend? Does not it especially hot. Warm is fine. Warm is fine. Warm water, half tub, warm water, two cups, Epsom salts, one cup, baking soda, 32 ounces, 3% peroxide, 40 minutes. Uh, people often notice after the first bath that their skin is much softer. Uh, because the magnesium is getting into the skin. Uh, magnesium is kind of a miracle mineral. Uh, you can even use it to help your plants grow better. It, um, it facilitates mitochondria function in a cell. So if you think of a cell like a car engine, right? A cell is a car engine. In the center is a spark plug. No spark, none of the rest of the engine works. In the human cell, that spark plug is called a mitochondria. And the mitochondria needs magnesium in order to run. And so there's sort of a, a seesaw uh, relationship between calcium and magnesium. Most people have too much calcium in their body. And, or rather, let me, let me correct that. Most people have insufficient magnesium, so their calcium to uh, magnesium ratio is imbalanced. So what you want to do is just get that magnesium up so that they come into balance. So in a sense, it's calcium ex uh, excess calcium, but it's not really. It's the because it, it's relative to the ratio of magnesium. Is that right? Correct, correct. And in fact, as I dug into this a little bit deeper, when I started putting this to the test, because I went and got blood tests, and then I would institute a protocol, use myself as a guinea pig. Let's take three baths a week. And then I would get a test and then I would say, well, let me add uh, another type of magnesium into my, my uh, regimen and I'll measure how much that is. And then I'll take a test and I'm just sort of measuring what homework I'm doing compared to what score I'm getting on the test. And so as I dug into this deeper, I discovered uh, through the work of others, because I just referenced scientific publications and, and books by doctors and physicians uh, that calcium in the wrong parts of the body is driving a lot of chronic disease. So when, uh, for instance, people talk about kidney stones or gallbladder stones or plaque in the arteries, if you're asking them what exactly is the stone or the plaque made out of, and oftentimes they're not specific, but if you nail them down for a specific answer, you will find out it is calcification. So it's actually calcium. Yeah. Calcium in the wrong parts of the body. This is a little simplified, but calcium belongs in your bones and your teeth. And if it is leached out, 
and it starts to float around and bind to other things uh, in order to neutralize them, they can form into stones and then get stuck in various uh, calcium in the joints, for instance, calcium in the arteries. And so um, this was a big aha for me because restoring magnesium to that balance helps to mitigate that uh, degenerative process of uh, basically osteoporosis, right? Your bones being demineralized, your teeth being demineralized. And then that, that calcium that belongs in the teeth and the bones is now floating around causing trouble uh, because it doesn't belong there. I see. Okay. So we to, to reiterate, there are baths, mm-hmm. 40 minutes, and it's warm, hot water, warm to hot water. Mm-hmm. Three times should give you a good idea that it's working. Mm-hmm. And the ingredients are baking soda, hydrogen peroxide, and uh, Epsom salt. And that's it. And what is that going to end up uh, running you, say, for one bath on average? Price wise, wow. have, have you figured out what cost, the cost, cost for bath? I have actually looked at that. It's about two dollars. About two bucks a bath. And then, how many times do you recommend somebody bathe in a say? Uh, okay, I've I've bathed now three times in the week. I feel better, but this is obviously since an, it's an external source mm-hmm. or supplementation. Mm-hmm. Uh, how often are you recommending? that someone take these baths? So my, my, my typical approach is to kickstart it with three baths in three days. Uh, I would say eight out of 10 people th- that follow that usually feel it by the time they finish the third bath. It's noticeable. Thereafter, uh, I would advocate once or twice a week as an ongoing thing in conjunction with another approach to begin to me- uh Keep your your get your magnesium levels higher to remineralize. Uh, so it's it's not the only thing that I suggest people do, but it is widely available. It's not completely foreign because people are familiar with taking Epsom salt baths, and for forty minutes, it's actually quite potent and quite quick. And for those of you who are just turning in, I am here today with uh, my good friend Mario Hostios, who is a trainer exceptionally gifted trainer and um, walks his talk. And we're talking about health and healing uh, in the age of the coronavirus. And um, Mario's been talking about a, do you have a name for the bath, Mario? I call it the power bath. Power bath. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at $2 a bath over the course of a month. How many of these baths are, uh, do you want your, your clients and customers to take your, I mean, how many do you recommend someone take during the, during a bath? So for most people, if they do a three-day weekend to kick off, and then the next three weeks they do two a week, well, we're looking at boom, 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 like nine of them, uh, thereabouts. I think I think that w- would be an enormously restorative thing. And I have had case study after case study of people coming back uh, telling me, wow, uh, my energy is better. My sleep is better. My mood is better. Um, the research that I've done regarding just magnesium deficiency uh, it indicates that if your mag- magnesium levels get topped off, it is also enormously prote- protective of, uh, against things like heart disease, cancer, and even dementia, uh, as all three of those things are driven by uh, calcification, actually, in the wrong parts of the body. Wow. So that's less than $20 in a month. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's extremely cheap. That's that is a uh, 
that sounds to me like a really wise investment that pays off multifold in terms of dividends in your your health and your sense of well-being psychologically and physiologically as well. So you have been when did you first start taking this experimenting with the with the power bath? How long has it been now? Oh gosh, it's probably been eight, nine years. Uh, for myself, I, I noticed about eight, nine years ago that I was starting to have a little decline in my own energy and sleep quality. And it prompted me, I thought, well, at my age, maybe is this normal? Uh, is this common? Is this natural? Is there anything I can do uh, to uh, stave things off, you know, and, and maintain uh, uh, a good physical uh, vitality? And so I started looking into this uh, really to solve my own problems initially. And that's when I started to get blood tests and started to uh, try things out, as I'm always a fan of uh, do-it-yourself and, uh, and natural as, as much as one can do. And uh, so I started looking into different tests. And I just had a guy recently get a serum magnesium test, which, which I don't recommend. That's actually not an extremely accurate test. I much prefer red blood cell magnesium. Um, but they were low, the score was low. And so it was an indication that, Hey man, you know, you're, the test is telling you that you're, you're deficient. Let's try the baths, three baths. And he said, yeah, I, I can tell the difference. I'm feeling better. So, well, then we'll add some other things to it. So, uh, I like the baths because they're, uh, widely available stuff and fast and potent, but in an ongoing, uh, situation, there are other supplements that make things a little less expes- uh, expensive and a little more convenient. Not everybody wants to sit in a tub for 40 minutes a day. I get that. There's some people, I mean, some people really love to sort of luxuriate in a bath like that. I, I know that what just occurred to me is, is there anything, are you going to get out of the bath? And, and for those who don't know anything about it, are you going to smell any way in particular? Or does it come off when you bathe? Does it make your skins slick, slimy? What's it? That's a great question. Let me think about that, that first. Like, uh, that might sound picayune, but I just know from having spoken to a lot of people, some people for little things like that, they will just say, nah, no thanks. Uh, um, uh, odor. That's a great question. So uh, what comes to mind with that, and I noticed this myself when I started uh, restoring my magnesium levels, is that overall your body odors uh, largely decline and eliminate. So... Uh, um, breath, uh, underarm odor, uh, bathroom odors, all of those things go down. And, and the, the way I would uh, speculate on what's happening is that the magnesium levels, when they're high, allow your metabolism to function efficiently. So uh, the fire is burning. And so what's happening is everything that you're eating is getting completely burned rather than incompletely burned. Uh, and so, so your odors go down actually, um, your skin generally feels pretty soft when you get out of the bath. I haven't heard anybody complain about that. In fact, uh, that's one of the things, one of the first things people often tell me is that, man, my skin's really soft after I, I hopped out of the bath. Um, some people don't like to be in the bath. We got other ways to address it, but that's still my favorite way to get people started. It's actually, it sounds, I mean, it's pretty simple. You it's, it's one thing to tell somebody to go to the gym and work out with intensity. It's another per- thing to tell a person to lay down in a, in a tub of hot water, enjoy your, reading a book or watching a video or something like that and say that's yeah. going to help get you fit and healthy. So that's probably a dream come true for a lot of people. <laughs> 
And, you know, it's funny. And, and so my entrance into, into this world was, was more physical culture. You know, the idea that you fixed every problem with uh, more weight and more reps that, uh, uh, and, and yet if somebody uh, wanted to make me choose right now, like, what are you going to do for health and immunity? Okay. Not necessarily fitness, but health and immunity. I would say hop in the tub first it's, and it'll make your workouts better, but hop in the tub. Uh, I have not seen one person yet uh, who got te- their magnesium levels tested, who came in even adequate, much less optimal. That was a real sobering uh, realization. Well, now, given that we, that we are globally in a time of a lot of uncertainty, and like you said, there there is a lot of news coming out about how, uh, well, who do you trust? Because there seems to be so much conflicting information and uh, back and forth and whatnot. What other things can be done that uh, are along those lines? What other kinds of things can uh, the listener, what can they begin to do to model your success, the kind of success you've had in your, the people that you work with have had by following along with those steps? That is the question of the moment. I'm so glad you asked that. That is the part that we, we, we for sure need to address. Um, numerous case studies, people on the front lines, uh, nurses, physicians, uh, orthomolecular scientist type people have been putting it to the test and seeing what can uh, micronutrient vitamins and minerals do to boost immunity. This is not something that in the broad you know, sense of the medical community, uh, they are focusing on because the, the medical community largely is uh, uh, dominated by uh, prescriptions and vaccines and that sort of stuff. So it's, they're just not looking at it. They do the research and you can find it if you look for it, but somehow it just slips through their fingers and it's just not considered relevant. You're, you're, not, not, you're not saying something like there's some conspiracy out it's less of a conspiracy like that sort of thing it's actually just their their focus is elsewhere uh undetermined i would say in the main you have uh, a vast majority of good people who are using their schooling and expertise in the way they have been taught uh in the the big picture i don't know and i don't know that it really matters because i've seen people talking about this in the news right now uh who to point the finger at. And right now I feel like the, the better use of our time and attention is not where do we point our fingers, but what do we do with our own two capable hands to take care of our business and our personal situation. And it turns out there are a few things we can do that are tremendously uh, useful and supportive. And what kinds of things are that? We'll jump into them right now. Number one is vitamin C. Vitamin C in a sufficient dose has been demonstrated in numerous case studies since January to effectively treat and even prevent COVID-19. There is a physician, his name is Richard Cheng. I believe he is based out of uh, South Carolina, but he has been in China for a few months and has come across several case studies of people who were really ill and they use intravenous vitamin C to successfully recover. Also, uh, additional case studies of people who were surrounded by infected people, even absent masks, who were taking high, high doses 
of oral vitamin C on the order of 20 grams a day and never got sick. Why this is not... Uh, for, those, for those of you guys listening, 20 grams is quite a large dose of, of vitamin C. That's 20,000 milligrams of... And the, the average vitamin C tablet has 500 milligrams, maybe? 100? 500 or one. 500 or one. So I, I would say they were taking 20... They were taking 20 tablets of vitamin C a day. Well, uh, okay. Now, so there are other ways to do that. We're not going to get sick from taking too much vitamin C. In fact, we're going to get healthy taking vitamin C. Nobody has ever died from a vitamin C overdose. They have spent some extra time in the bathroom. <laughs> but, but let's weigh that out. Since they've been taking the baths, there's no smell. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right? And they're alive. So, so this was a huge uh, aha moment, and there has been additional uh, work and effort done since then to, to, to estimate what levels, what the threshold is. Can you get by with less? But suffice to say, it needs to be more than what's on the bottle. It's widely available and inexpensive, and there are three types. There's intravenous, which you absorb 100%. There is liposomal, which is a vitamin C wrapped in fat that you absorb about 80%. And then there is the common uh, vitamin C tablets most people are familiar with. You only absorb those about 20%. That's why you needed to take 20 grams a day. You needed to take 20 in order to hold four, if that makes sense. Sure, that makes sense, yeah. Okay. And so that's, a, that's a, a, a point I wanna stress for the listener and what I would advise to any listener right now would be to stock up on vitamin C. The second thing that's enormously helpful, and again, we're getting more case reports, things are coming out. There was a study done in Europe maybe three weeks ago where uh, they were taking confirmed cases, people who had been tested positive for this and had symptoms, and they checked them for vitamin C levels. They found everybody was low. Not one person was adequate, much less optimal. But the second thing they were checking for was vitamin D levels. Again, they found a pattern. Not one person was adequate. Everybody was low. Nobody was optimal. And so vitamin D is also enormously uh, supportive of immunity. This is um, actually a hormone rather than a vitamin to be precise that our bodies make when we get a tan. So if you go outside and you're in a swimsuit and you're out there in the noonday sun, your body makes vitamin D. You can also get some vitamin D from foods because there is some in foods, but, but uh, in most cases, people are going to need to take a supplement because they're just not going to get enough from food and they're not going to be out in the sun enough. Good news, a six-month supply of vitamin D at supportive levels on the order of 5,000 IUs a day is going to cost you eight, 10 bucks, last right. you six months. Right. Eight or ten dollars. That's it. And now, that's are there it. any anything? Uh, we're looking at taking a bath. You're looking at some supplementation like vitamin C and vitamin D3. What else is there? Are there uh, exercises or are there things you can do to to help out that you might not expect in addition to these two? Mm, good question. So if we're if we're going along the lines of trying to boost immunity, we know that one of the things that's really supportive of that is good sleep that if a person is getting poor sleep or no sleep, your uh, immunity will decline uh, rapidly, rapidly. You go a few days without sleep and, and you can do a blood draw on somebody and see that 
that all of their immune support has uh, uh, been stressed out basically. So we're, we're going to add a, a, an exercise. Yeah, yeah, there actually is. Uh, one that has to do with circadian rhythms, right? The body runs on a 24-hour cycle, and there are natural times for you to sleep, to eat, to be awake, et cetera. And uh, probably uh, a very simple thing I would do is uh, in the morning, just meet the morning sun, face the morning sun, eyes open, and get your feet grounded. No rubber sole shoes. Uh, barefoot is okay. Uh, socks or uh, I prefer those little kung, kung fu cotton sole shoes. The slippers. Stand, yeah, the slippers. Stand on a natural surface and face the morning sun for 10 or 15 minutes. This sets your circadian rhythms so that your body clock is synced with your location and the sun. And this also helps uh, just facing the morning sun. No glasses. You would take those off. Um, no sunglasses either. <laughs> no sunglasses. Absolutely not. No. <laughs> or <laughs> or uh, glasses with uh, UV coating on them. They're the same problem. So uh, um, you just face the morning sun and it allows the body to make melatonin naturally. Wow. That's a, that is really interesting. And that's free. That's free. That, the price is right on that one. So here we are in this uh, the world with the coronavirus situation. When do you think that we'll get back to normal or will we? I know that's a question going around right now. That's a great question. Uh, uh, I don't think we're going to go back to normal. Uh, I do think that we're entering a, uh, a challenging period, and I think we will – emerge from this challenging period into a better world uh, because we are going to uh, rediscover our resourcefulness. I think the uh, do-it-yourself um, uh, meme that has been growing in popularity the last several years is going to evolve or coalesce into a do-it-together um, as we mentioned at the, at the onset of our, our talk, you know, people feeling this, this um, anxiety, this uh, pain, you know, a sadness even over this trust being stressed, breaking, you know, I, you know it, it's, 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 a, it's like a loss of innocence in a way. I, I think that we're culturally just now in May of 2020 entering into a period where it's like finding out there's no Santa Claus. And that's no Santa Claus. There is no Santa Claus. <laughs> or, or we could say that Santa Claus is. Am I learning that? <laughs> and then we'll get to the Easter Bunny, right? And so our illusion. Don't tell me there's no Easter Bunny. <laughs> Don't tell me there's no Easter Bunny. Because now I got to start asking all kinds of questions about who's been putting that money under my pillow. That would be the tooth fairy. That would be the tooth fairy. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's the tooth right, fairy. Right, right. Now it's you're telling me I got the tooth fairy and the tooth fairy confused? <laughs> I got to go talk to my family. Been playing a long joke with me. <laughs> but, but doesn't that comment kind of sum up what, what we see happening right now? This, this relationship between authority, right? And then the, the people who consent to that authority is being challenged by these circumstances and situations and 
I think we're, we're kind of in a process where we're going to lose a little bit of our innocence, but we're going to gain something even more valuable. And so what I'm, what I'm uh, uh, advocating and offering to people, especially if you are feeling a disruption in your life right now and feeling the pain of it, is to just think of like the, you know, the pain of childbirth. Something new is coming at new opportunities. Uh, we have in our possession right now the understanding to largely protect ourselves from COVID-19. Vitamin C, vitamin D. Oh, and also zinc. So zinc is also something that, that contributes to immunity. These are widely available. They are inexpensive. I would uh, urge everybody to stock up on it now. 50 bucks will give you a many months supply. And um, oh, it is safe to it, it is safe to find the 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 supplements and take the supplements. They really are safe. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Very low risk. It's it's it is conceivable to uh, overdo vitamin D pills. It's not easy. What I tell most people, 5000 I use a day and get a tan twice a week. Uh, not to get lost in the details on the zinc, but. Uh, the, the zinc I like is called balanced zinc because it has zinc and copper in it in a, a 15 zinc to one copper ratio. They have a, a, a relationship that likes to be maintained that way. You take a couple of those a day and boom, handled, it's done. And uh, um, it's my position that while the lockdowns were effective and necessary back in April, uh, when we were really just sucker punched by, by uh, the spread of COVID-19. We're now in a position to end them and start getting back to work provided vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, and, uh, and masks if you're uh, in public or you know, in enclosed spaces with, uh, with people. Uh, I, I, think we, I think we could uh, keep the curve flat and get about the business of solving this problem and going on to what's next. Oh, no, Mario, that sounds like good news. I, I know for myself, if I was just sort of interject here, I know that you as a trainer also are someone who, uh, who is a martial artist as well. And, um, for myself, um, something that I think is really helpful for one's health and not, that I engage in as a practice, uh, is meditation. When did you get involved with martial arts and are you, do you have a special meditation that you practice as well? Yes. Yes. Where was, where and when, like did that get started? That was my gosh, that would have been when I was about 23 and, and it was actually part of how I uh, uh, came up with a solution for my back pain. So I was pursuing this thread. It was like getting a hold of a thread and just pulling on the thread. Uh, finding out where it leads, what, what, where am I headed by pulling on this thread, uh, what's coming my way. And uh, I eventually uh, started to get into yoga and Tai Chi, just kind of curious as to what it was actually and, and how does it work uh, beyond the uh, traditional and cultural explanations? What is the chemistry behind it? What is the physics behind it? And so that eventually led me to, uh, to get into a martial art that sort of fused uh, the, the self-defense techniques 
with the meditative practices. I was very lucky in that regard. I found that in a teacher, uh, his name is Carl Godwin. And uh, um, out of that, I, I really conspicuous um, experience of, of acupuncture, uh, the Chinese, what the Chinese called chi or the, the Indians called prana. And, and what is it exactly, right? Do you want to know what it is? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I want to so, know what you think that what you think the chi or prana. It's it's known known in other names as well, right? Absolutely. Uh, the, the Tibetans call it rung. Uh, the the Greeks called it pneuma, pneumonia. That's the root of the word pneumonia. Um, the the Christians call it the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so there have been lots of different words for this thing. And uh, what I offer now is just a model. Uh, Lao Tzu in his book, uh, Tao Te Ching, he, he makes a point that the way that can be described is not the way. And, and what he infers from that is that a map of the territory is not the territory itself. And yet a good map can help us to traverse the territory. So that's kind of what I'm going to offer here is, is a map of that. And this is uh, very much inspired by my teacher's efforts to reverse engineer this stuff and arrive at greater clarity so that we can uh, be on a path to uh, greater achievements. And so basically what I, what I discovered, what we discovered uh, was that the, the notion of uh, qi came down to two aspects, yin and yang. And the yang is an expansive uh, force. It, it, it explodes out in all directions, sort of like sunshine. And the yin actually contracts in all directions, sort of like gravity. And so for the sake of the model, we could basically say that yang is sunlight and that gravity is yin. And in the Indian tradition, they have a similar setup. They talk about prana being sunlight, but also upana being uh, the gravitational force. They describe both in the same way. And so uh, to summarize, 20 years of practicing and reading and trying to get a handle on this, what is exactly happening? And then meeting people uh, who can demonstrate in obvious, conspicuous ways um, an, ability, an ability to be aware of these uh, currents, to manipulate them and use them, uh, almost like a human electrician, right? Here, here's, here it is. Yin and yang keep you alive. Sunlight and gravity, you need both. You don't get any sunlight, you start to physically break down. You put uh, somebody in uh, prison in solitary confinement. I was say, in the, many of those prison stories, they yes. take the prisoner and they put him in solitary and they deprive him of sunlight for an extended period of time to, to break him. Exactly. And uh, the converse about gravity is also true. So uh, astronauts who spend a lot of time in zero G also are subject to certain health issues that have to be mitigated. So we need all of us sunlight and gravity. The process of meditation, irrespective of the method or tradition, now those are varying methods and traditions, but the actual process, the actual mechanism has to do with facilitating the flow of the sun and the uh, gravitational currents within the person in such a way that it, it uh, lends itself to greater immunity, vitality, and sanity or mental emotional balance. That's sort of the phase one, if you will. 
And then phase two has to do with rebirth. And we see then the idea of rebirth referenced in many traditions, uh, born again Christians, uh, baptism, uh, kundalini uh, experience or awakening. In the, awakening. Uh, uh-huh. Yes, yes, within the, the Indian traditions. So many of these traditions, if you read closely, you will see the same uh, event being described. And that is essentially uh, in the, the secondary process of meditation that the sunlight and gravity come together and merge to create a third force, a new force. Uh, and it's a spark of enlightenment. Uh, again, a born again Christian. It's, it's a similar type of, of uh, thing. And um, to, to again, to flesh out this model, if you have ying and yang, and then you have the living lightning uh, that is, comes from the union of both, you could have prana and apana in the kundalini that is born of the merging of both. You could have God the Father, God the Son, which is begotten by the mother. So here's heaven and mother, right? Father, Earth, mother, uh-huh. Father, sky, mother, earth, coming together and creating the Holy Spirit. And the person is reborn. And then the process of meditation continues to mature this uh, light body. The Tibetans call it a rainbow body uh, because the idea is all the colors of light are present within it. Wow, that's that is fascinating. Now, how does well are there other elements that need to be addressed here? Uh, such as, well, I mean, you you've kind of addressed. It seems like um, at a biochemical level, you've addressed something here. Are there other elements that need to be addressed? That's a great point. Uh, so, so what I just, you're talking about the baths, mm-hmm. you're talking about adding in meditation, mm-hmm. sunlight, grounding, mm-hmm. right? Taking your shoes and socks off, getting your feet on mother earth, mm-hmm. getting out there and having a relationship with father sky, so to speak Yep. with sunlight, having yep. a, a conscious relationship with yin and yang mm-hmm. in the model that you're sharing. And I think that's probably true. Meditation certainly does in- increase your consciousness. That's I'm asking: Are there any other elements here? It's a good good point. So, so the um, what I just described is sort of an overview of a human being within the context of frequency, right? So, when I think of of meditation or meditative practices, or even the meditative martial arts, I look at it as a biofrequency sort of thing recognizing that we need sunlight and gravity and recognizing that we can facilitate that flow through those practices uh, to such a degree that they merge and create a, um, a, a new self, if you will, a reborn self. Uh, that's the biofrequency. Talking about the bass, we're talking about the, the biochemistry, right? The natural facilitating the natural needs of the human body biochemically. And in particular, addressing a couple things that are commonly deficient, almost almost universally deficient, that are inexpensive to correct. If we, if we look at another th- context, a third context, that would be uh, biomechanics, right? Which relates a lot to uh, posture and uh, um, also how the, the body remains aligned in movement. If, if posture is a photograph, biomechanics would be a video of you actually moving and seeing is that happening in a facilitated or an inhibited fashion. 
And um, I would consider that an important part because commonly most people succumb to pain and uh, physical limitation as they get older. And it is not, it is not a result of getting older. It is rather a consequence of having poor biomechanics for a long period of time. The good news is that can be fixed in a way that's similar to putting braces on your teeth, right? So if crooked teeth can be straightened out over time, crooked joints and painful muscles can be aligned over a period of time. So with this combination of uh, biofrequency elements, mm -hmm. the biomechanical elements, biochemical elements, all brought together, we have a, the result is by engaging in, in these practices that over a period of time, there is something that's a bit uh, like a rebirth, regeneration, rejuvenation, uh, that sort of thing. Yes, exactly that. So if a person... Does, can, well, let me say this. How does all this, how does this fit into the grander scheme of things, this ooh. personal development? Because that's what you're talking about is... Is this is this is occurring at many levels. This is occurring at the physical level. It's influencing the individual at the level of their mind, their 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 thinking, the quality of their thoughts. Um, they will probably tend to have less negative thoughts, more positive thinking, less chatter, that kind of thing. I imagine, in terms of their emotion, they're going to be experiencing uh, more happiness, more joy, more peace, more peace, that sort of thing, and less less depression, less sadness, less uh, irritability, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a kind of personal development occurring at multiple levels, at, at least, particularly when you're beginning to talk about subtle energies like chi, and someone will become sensitive enough, it sounds like, that they can begin to sense and feel the chi in and around them. And that's why I want to know, this: how does it fit into the, the bigger picture? That's a profound question. So uh, to think about that, if we invest in ourselves and are able to uh, realize our unrecognized potential, right, and we are increasing our value, uh, perhaps subtly, but exponentially. So it may not be as obvious as a Thanksgiving Day parade float, you know, coming down the street. And yet we have more to offer uh, because our resources are, are greater. Our connection to resource is stronger. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm of the opinion that human beings are actually networked through the sun and the earth. And that as we cultivate our relationship to both aspects of that, we actually uh, uh, are connecting to others in more subtle and significant ways. And yeah, I agree. Uh, I know for me, this path has made me more physically resilient, more mentally resilient, and more stable. So, you know, uh, you experience all of the gamut of emotions that any of us do, but from a point of stability as opposed to a point of instability. And that stability gives you a place to stand on and move from and make good decisions from. I'm also of the opinion that uh, certain aspects or talents of mental um, creativity and cognition and all that sort of stuff, the artist in all of us, right, is nurtured and brought forth by going on this path. So there may just be uh, a laundry list 
of potential talents and creative things in a person that are um, waiting to be accessed, but those, those faculties need to be fed first before they can really arise to the surface. Well, now for those of you guys who are, are, um, are listening, this is uh, the Robert Barham Show. I'm speaking to my friend Mario Hostios, who is a very talented trainer and more martial artist. And we're talking about uh, many things, fitness, health, well-being. And Mario, what's the, what is, in your opinion, what do you think is the greatest war- reward that a person can receive in life? Mm. Um, transcendence. What is transcendence? To you. So I, again, yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll return to that model about biofrequency and, and the the model on meditation. So uh, three three stages. There is the that's the right way to put this the gestation stage. So as an initiate, a person is uh, meditating and uh, uh, they are. Um, becoming aware of the yin and yang, the sunlight and gravity energies. And as they do, those things are flowing through them. And as they flow more effortlessly, they flow faster. That's sort of like the gestation stage. The uh, moment of rebirth is when those energies are flowing so freely that they end up merging together. They come together. That would be being reborn, right? Uh, Again, Christians might call it the Holy Spirit. The Indians might call it a kundalini awakening. However, to be reborn is hardly to be grown up. It's just to be reborn. Right? Continued practice grows this merging, and it grows in much the way that the human body, you know, the physical body grows, this, uh, this energy body, this, this Holy Spirit, if you will, grows and grows and grows, and it eventually matures through stages, like being a kid, like being a a teenager, and eventually being an adult. We could uh, loosely describe the state of reaching adulthood as being enlightened. But beyond being an adult or a young adult, there is a further stage of maturation, a further stage of growth that uh, I would characterize as transcendence. That would be the full uh, maturation of the light body and the full, the completed merging um, of the soul with the light body. So I hope I'm not getting too far out on a limb for, for the listener here, but if you think about, yeah, if you think about the body, the physical body and the soul being attached at birth, in the process of meditation, the soul also attaches to the light body as the light body matures. And then that merging until it's complete. Now what's transcendence? What what along with transcendence, what do you think is the best contribution that someone can make, that a person can make? Hmm. Uh, I I really like Victor Schauberger's uh, motto, comprehend and copy nature. I have found that to be very useful. And I think as we practice this path, we learn increasingly how to comprehend and copy nature, how things work. And this goes into so many assets, uh, aspects of one's life, uh, knowing what to say and when, knowing when to refrain from, from speaking, when you're interacting with people in a way that is you're constructive, right, rather than destructive, uh, 
you can even extrapolate this into a social order, uh, this idea of comp comprehending and copying nature. You can take the notion of the yin-yang and the trigrams and, uh, and even extrapolate it into how you could have a, a better uh, economic system, a better sociopolitical order. How do we uh, cultivate uh, human beings that can reach their greatest heights? The ones that reach their greatest heights are the ones who will be able to have the wisdom and access to their talents to, to give and receive the most. Mario, um, with, with transcendence and the kind of contribution that you're talking about, along with that and the physical body, people who come to you who follow through that, like you said, people who will uh, leave a legacy, hopefully, mm -hmm. and... What is it that um, someone can do if they want to find more about you? They want to reach out and find out what you're doing, what you're writing about. They want to contact you. How can someone get a hold of you? Ah, uh, my website. Uh, it's my name, MarioOstios.com. I have uh, a, a way for people to subscribe to my public blog updates, where I just put in relevant, uh, useful information all under this umbrella, uh, health, wealth, and legacy. Uh, I also have a private list, a private newsletter that I put out uh, that has the things I can't really talk about publicly. Uh, and, and, but for people who are interested in going a little bit deeper and further into it. And, you know, if somebody wants to go to my contact page and hit me up on Zoom, I'm happy to offer 15 minutes of my time just to connect with them to find out uh, if they have a unique situation and maybe they need a little pointer on how to approach it. Mario, thanks for being here today. I really enjoyed the conversation. I know that I want to know more. I'm sure that uh, the listeners who've been listening to the show want to know more as well. And uh, that's my good friend, Mario Hostios. Thanks for being here. Hey, the honor is mine. Thank you for so much for your time. To the listener, try those baths, get your vitamin C, D and, and uh, zinc. Let's uh, make sure everybody stays healthy and let's get to what's on the other side of this challenge. I'm Robert Barham, and this has been another episode. And welcome again to another show, another episode of the Robert Barham Show. I am Robert Barham, and today we definitely have another wonderful guest, a longtime friend of mine who actually is living on the same coast as me again. Mr. Brian Mallow, science comedian, is here. Hey, Brian, how you doing? Hey, now can can do I call you Doc or Robert? I know you as Doc. That's right. You do know me as Doc, and you're RobertDocBarham.com. That's right. You can actually you're free to choose either one. I, I don't have any as we're in the kind of near the south, so I don't have. I'll any. go with yeah. Mr. Barham. <laughs> <laughs> We spend an hour calling each other Mr. Mallow and Mr. Bob. Yes. <laughs> we never get any closer. It sounds like a phone call. We're socially distancing, even with people we were once closer to. <laughs> <laughs> In name as well. It sounds like a Quentin Tarantino movie. Mr. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good to talk to you again, Brian. You yeah. Actually, you and I first met. I want to just sort of back up real quick and give a little bit of a yeah. you so that the uh, the listeners know who you are and what you're all about. You are- I can't wait to find out. Who am I? What am I about? That is the big question for you and everybody else here. Maybe I will know at the end of this hour. <laughs> you and I met first, was it in San Francisco? Yeah, I think so. 
Now, you're not originally from San Francisco. You're actually, yep. nor am I. I'm originally from the Washington, D.C. area in Northern Virginia, and you are from the Houston well, I was born in Chicago, but I was about five when we moved to Texas. Wasn't my choice. I didn't have much influence on that decision, but born in Chicago, raised in Texas. And I grew up in Houston mostly. And then I went to college in Austin at the University of Texas. And it was in Austin that I started my comedy career. Austin, okay. What and so I love Austin. And in some ways, I mean, Houston's my hometown. I, I Third grade through high school, I grew up in Houston. But those college years, and then I stayed after college, I stayed in Austin. So I lived in Austin about 12 years, started my comedy career. Ultimately, I would move to Los Angeles briefly and then up to San Francisco. Oh, I, no, I didn't know that. I didn't know you went to L.A. for a while. Just th three years in L.A. I wasn't ready. It, you know what? I wish... When I moved to L.A., I should have moved to San Francisco. I wasn't ready for L.A. I don't even know if I'm ready for L.A. now, but I should have moved to San Francisco to develop more at that time. Um, it wasn't right. For me, at the time, I wasn't headlining everywhere. I was a middle act uh, uh, most often. And because of that, I lived in LA, but I had to be on the road all the time. And it, it doesn't make that much sense to be in Los Angeles to try to make something happen if you always have to be out on the road to make money. Um, I wasn't ready to be in Los Angeles. Yeah, it certainly makes it difficult if you're on the road all the time and you live in LA. But now, I, um, I moved to San Francisco because I've been doing stand-up comedy out of the East Coast, and I wanted to get to the West Coast. And I'd consider moving to New York City but I went up there, I shot a television show for Comedy Central, and I decided that if I had a preference, that I'd prefer to go to the West Coast, preferably somewhere like Los Angeles. But some of my comedy friends, guys who, uh, uh, guys who actually lived in San Francisco too, but didn't start out there, like Blaine Kapatch and Patton Oswalt and some of the other guys, I think Jeff Hatz too, those guys were like, hey man, you should come out to San Francisco. It's really a, a wonderful town for stand-up comedy. And that ultimately is what kind of brought me out there, that and the desire to, for me, in my mind, San Francisco was a bit like the on-deck circle before you showed up in Los Angeles. Yeah, that's why I wish I had moved there first. What year did you move to San Francisco? I, you know, it, I know it was in the 90s, but I don't remember the exact... I it, moved to San Francisco in 95, and I don't remember, but that's we met sometime probably in the mid to late 90s there in San Francisco. We may have both shown up... Uh, about the same time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So you moved out. What, what was it that brought you, uh, you know, all the decisions? You well, did, first you did of all, why did you decide to go to San Francisco for stand-up? Yeah. Let me tell you this. First of all, when I, when I had a, when I was living in Austin, I, uh, my comedian friend and roommate, Tom Hester and I decided to move to Los Angeles. We moved to Los Angeles in 1992 we were, we drove from, we drove, we both had little Hondas. We packed up all our stuff and with all our possessions loaded in our little cars, we drove to Los Angeles and we arrived right after the verdict in the Rodney King trial came out and there were riots and stuff. Los Angeles was going crazy and we were arriving with all our possessions in our car. And uh, it was a very weird time and there was sort of a, it was a weird time to just to, to come to, to, to Los Angeles. But like I said, I spent about three years there. So that would have been 1992? 92. Okay. And 
it was interesting and fun. And, and, you know, one of my old good comedy friends was Mitch Hedberg. And we both, I think we had become friends. We met on the road around then or just before it. And then we were both living in Los Angeles and, uh, and then this was a time when he was one of my best friends and we used to hang out together a lot in LA. So LA, there was a lot of great stuff about it. And a lot of people I knew there who had moved there from other cities, but I didn't get much going on, but I went up to San Francisco one year and I did the San Francisco international comedy competition. And I didn't do well in the competition, but I'm, I got a great dose of the Bay Area. I met a lot of interesting people. Uh, I don't know if that's how I met Blaine, but there were certain just people that I, I went up to San Francisco in addition to the competition where you get to perform maybe seven or eight shows through the course of a week in different venues. And then in subsequent visits, I'd come back to San Francisco a couple times and some, a, a local booker, um, uh, would got, got me some work and, um, I would come to the clubs and people were very nice to me. So when I was thinking all of a sudden I was like, you know, in San Francisco, there were a bunch, there, there were several full-time comedy clubs that you could work and make money while you're in town. It's a weird thing in some cities, you know, when you're a comic, there's only so much work in your hometown. So you have to be on the road to make money. And especially in Los Angeles, there's not much of that. There's little showcase sets where you get a few bucks, like in New York and LA, but San Francisco had clubs where you could work a full week and get paid for a week of work and be in town. So like you would, um, if you were on the road, unfortunately the timing was such that when I moved there, that stuff started to fade in those subsequent years. But I really liked San Francisco. I moved to San Francisco. I ended up moving in with two other comedians, Kevin Kataoka and Jim Short. Uh-huh. We all became roommates um, along with Kevin's girlfriend, Beth, uh, at the time. Oh, and fun. so we, uh, yeah, that started a long time. I ended up spending 17 years in San Francisco from 1995 until I moved to Raleigh in 2012. Oh, okay. So now I moved out there. Right, not it, probably right around the same time that you did, and I was in Haight Ashbury, and I mm-hmm. was when you and I met, and um, and then you and I worked together on the road at least at least one time. So you went from LA to San Francisco, and now you are firmly ensconced in in Raleigh. Yeah, you know what? We all got me and Jim Short and Kevin Katsuoka. We all got an apartment together in the Outer Sunset at Forty First Avenue. Um, near right next to Golden Gate Park and very close to the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, that is. And, but before we settled on a place, we were all crashing at Kevin's place in Berkeley. And I once got a call from Pat Oswalt. And when, when I was moving in 95, Patton and Blaine Kapach were writing partners and they had just gotten a job on Mad TV. Right, And this would have been early in their writing careers. And they moved from San Francisco to Los Angeles. To Los Angeles. And Patton contacted me because he still had one month left on his lease. And he heard that I was there. And the last month of his lease, I sublet his apartment in the hate. Uh, him and Blaine had an apartment on, on hate, uh, not just off hate street, just off one block up off hate street. 
And uh, so for one month, uh, and Jim came and crashed there with me too. We uh, uh, sublet Patton Oswalt's apartment. I sublet the apartment and I let Jim crash with me. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then we all, and then it took us a while for three starving artists and a girlfriend of one. Um, uh, it was hard for us to find a sufficient three bedroom apartment. So it took us a while. So I rented Patton's apartment. Then we all lived together and yeah. Nice. So now you keep in touch with the, some of those guys still to this day. I mean, obviously yeah, a little bit. Mitch is no longer alive, obviously. But yeah. I remember working with Mitch. He's such a funny guy, but certainly uh, Patton and Blaine and uh, Kevin and Jim, they're all alive. Do you keep in touch with any of those guys? You know, I like all of them. And uh, Blaine and Patton, uh, I really like them. I don't keep in touch with them much. Although Blaine, even more than Patton, I see on Twitter all the time. He is such a funny writer. And, and he's also, he's a brilliant comedian. He's done a great job writing for TV shows, but it's a completely other thing. He's really good at Twitter. He's really good at writing succinct little tweets that are they're jokes and they're short and they're just perfect for Twitter. He's very funny on Twitter. Yeah, uh, and I think Patton probably is too, but it just seems like, you know that weird thing. I follow them both, but Patton always shows up in my stream. I mean, Blaine always shows up in my stream. Oh. Uh, and I find his, he's just hilarious. Um, and yeah, Jim Short and Kevin Katoka, I'm still friendly with. Um, we all live in different places. And Jim right now is back in Australia, um, where he's originally from and where his family is. Uh, and Kevin is in Los Angeles. Um, and we keep in touch. Yeah. Very I like all those guys. Now you're, but you are in Raleigh. Raleigh, North Carolina, which is actually a wonderful town for stand-up comedy in, uh, in a lot of ways. They have the, uh, down there is a, uh, uh, Charlie Goodnights. In the yeah, it's just called Goodnights now, but it was for many years, it was Charlie Goodnights, and all the comedians that know it uh, still call it Charlie Goodnights, but it's just called Goodnights now. And uh, But that was back in the days when there were comedy clubs, and people used to congregate in groups um, in person, not, not like zoom calls. <laughs> I, I'm talking people use, it was a dark time when people would gather together just to listen to someone tell jokes on a stage and sit right next to total strangers who aren't even vaccinated. So it was a dark time. So what brings you, what, what brought you to Raleigh? I mean, one of the things I want to make sure that we, we get to today is that as long as I've known you, even back when, I mean, you've been involved in like technical stuff you like you really like kind of tech stuff and science and all of that kind of stuff like i even remember way back in san francisco you were doing a you did a show for a while called but seriously and that was i mean that was a many years ago and you were using that was back then to do a show that was on the web and it was really something 20 and, years ago it yeah. was in 1999 and 2000 it was before podcasting it was before there was really much video on the web. In fact, it was exactly when a lot of flash animation was hitting the web and a lot of flash shows. Like there were all these well-funded startups that were putting out flash cartoons that were made in, in flash. And it was at 99 and 2000, a lot of that was popping up. And I got, there was a tech company they were called Play Incorporated and they had a network called Play TV and there were six shows. And one was this guy, Alex Bennett, who was a longtime radio broadcaster. Previously in New York, he was a big force in San Francisco radio 
And he used to feature comedians on his show all the time. So he had a very popular show in San Francisco. And at this point in 99 and 2000, he was doing a live streaming video talk show. And I came on as the sixth and final show on that network. And I did a two hour show like this live streaming video from an apartment, but it was dedicated and made into a studio. It was pretty neat tech. It's amazing how far we've come where now you can do live streaming, you know, video from a phone. This was still much more affordable than a regular TV station. And I did 300 episodes. I did a year and a half of a five days a week talk show. And I interviewed a ton of scientists. It was called, but seriously with Brian Mallow. And I interviewed authors, comedians. I had you were on the show, weren't you? I was on the show. Yeah, yeah at least once as a um, guest on your show. And I had some other comedians like Greg Proops and Brian Regan and Rick Overton and Jim Short and Kevin Katoka. I never had Blaine or Patton. Um, Tom Rhodes. Uh-huh. Um, quite. I had a lot of comedians. And I had a lot of authors and scientists. And so I enjoy interviewing people and I enjoy interviewing scientists. And I'm glad you brought all, so all this up, uh, my interest in science, we can get into that a little more. But what happened is, because it feeds into that question you just asked about how I ended up in Raleigh. It's because of all these things. Um, at some point, I realized that a lot of my, comedy was kind of geeky and science geeky and some of my favorite jokes weren't ideal for a nightclub audience unless there was like a critical mass of geeks or scientists or something in the audience and then I could pull out some of my favorite geekiest jokes and they would work really well and I so so here's the way I say it humorously sometimes is I realized that I had to find the complimentary audience to my act the adenine to my thymine, the guanine to my cytosine, if you will. <laughs> that's, a, that's a science joke. Um, DNA. Um, <laughs> so what happened is at some point along the way, I came up with the phrase science comedian. And when I looked for sciencecomedian.com, it was available, which two words, two science comedian spelled correctly in the .com 10 or 12 years ago um, to find that in the dot com, I was like, the fact that it was available, either that was a really good sign or a really bad sign. <laughs> like it's useless real estate. Two words like that, which are, are common usage words, that that's some pretty good real estate in the domain. Yes. Yeah, so what happened is I was like, oh, science comedian. I got sciencecomedian.com and then I'm science comedian. Let me go ahead and make that plug. I'm on Instagram <laughs> and Twitter and YouTube and science comedian and on Facebook. I, that became my handle and it really defined what I was doing. And the funny thing is it wasn't a calculated thing. It's like, I shall be the science comedian. What it was, a friend of mine, John O'Connell, another comedian, uh, 10, you know, like some years later, he was like, we all knew you were the science comedian all the way back in Austin, you know, even years, 10 years earlier. And it just took so long for it to crystallize that way. I was always kind of geeky, but suddenly when I would go, oh, science comedian, oh, it's not what I want to be. It's what I'm already doing. If I just cut away some of the other stuff, and it's not even like all my jokes are about science. Sometimes it's very absurd. It's just taking the language and metaphors and stuff from science and 
Sure. Some stuff might be educational. Other stuff is just silliness. I used to be an astronomer, but I got stuck on the day shift, which sucks. You know, <laughs> that's simple and short and quotable. But uh, it's like, you're not going to learn anything. It's just geeky. Sure. My, my, my girlfriend, uh, people used to say we look like a couple. And I think it's because she, she was the right height for me. She was a lot shorter than me. In fact, the first time I saw her, I thought she was farther away than she actually was. <laughs> it's like that. Now, that's kind of a sign. But others are like even more peripheral. Like, like I'm just talking about a subject, but then I bring in an analogy from science or something. So I have a broad definition of what science comedy means. And, uh, okay, so I became the science comedian. It's like, oh, okay. And I also started getting work more often. You know, comics do, there's sort of three general categories of work. We do nightclubs. That's the classic. Nightclubs and then theaters if you, if you get bigger. And then you do colleges and everything else is called a corporate gig, which could be for an actual corporation. It could be for a nonprofit, any private party. We just call that a corporate gig. So I used to mostly do comedy clubs. And you do some colleges and corporate gigs. Well, then it started to shift to where I started getting more work at colleges and corporate gigs, like science organizations. I was the perfect comedian for their conference, back when humans used to gather together for conferences in person, not a Zoom conference. I mean, a little scientific fact. Did you know that they're they're six foot social distancing? Do you know six feet that the word six feet, six feet is a fathom and that the Saxon word for fathom is fatum, F-A-E-T-M. Guess what it means? It means embrace. <laughs> a fathom is only six feet. So when you hear about like, yeah, like Mark, that term, it's only six feet. I believe marking Twain. Mark Twain is at twelve feet. It's two fathoms. I find that hard to fathom. <laughs> um, hey, that's not an example of my humor. Don't turn off your the show just now. From a video sense, we are actually less than six feet away from one another. Right. <laughs> and yet. So um, my career started morphing and it also morphed in another way. I started being asked if I do. Well, OK, so I have a video background, too. Um, you know what? There's a keynote that Steve Jobs gave at Stanford University, and it's about a 20 minute speech. And it's a pretty good little keynote. Uh, one of the things he says is really interesting to me. He said something about connecting the dots. When you look back at your life, and I'll preface this by saying I'm not new agey or mystical or anything, but I do think this is interesting. He said something about the fact that, for instance, he dropped out of Stanford and he audited classes. He, since he was no longer on a, a plan, he could take whatever he wanted. And he decided to take a calligraphy class for no practical reason. But later, when they were developing the, the first Mac, his knowledge of fonts and calligraphy fed into some specific design issues of how they made fonts for the Mac, which would later get copied by Windows. And now that, that class that he randomly took in calligraphy for no real reason ended up influencing how fonts are on personal computers all around the world. Global effect. Yeah. And that's kind of interesting. And it's like looking how like stepping stones, like I, I don't, believe there's a, cert, a path, but it is interesting that as a kid, 
I was, I was interested in comedy, but I was more interested in science. I was interested in both and where they intersected like Isaac Asimov, Isaac Asimov, who's best known as a science fiction writer. Many people may not realize he wrote more nonfiction. He wrote more science writing, explaining science in every discipline of science. He wrote more nonfiction than science fiction. And I went from his science fiction to his nonfiction. And I learned about science and he wrote with personality and he wrote with humor. And I would say that he was a bigger influence on my sensibilities. He was very rational and he could explain things without losing you. He could take you to a complex place without losing you. Uh Like he never, you know, usually if you read a science book, you get to a part where it's like, you lost me. And it's a, it's a, a fail. What we have here is a failure to communicate. <laughs> and um, Asimov was just brilliant at it, and he was funny too. And so I think George Carlin and some others were influences on me. But as when I was young, I really liked science and science fiction. Um, I wrote songs with a friend, and that was an interest. Did not pursue science. Went to college. Then I went to graduate school and I learned video skills. I went into TV production at the University of Texas in Austin. Oh, okay. While I was learning video production skills, I tried the funniest person in Austin contest. I was ready to try stand-up. And then I left video behind. So what happens is I become a comedian. But at a certain point, I had an opportunity to make science videos for Time Magazine. And this was before I was officially the science comedian. So I made science videos at time. Then I became, then I named, called myself, then I got that science comedian label. And then people started asking me if I do any training of scientists because they had seen my videos where I explained some science and they'd seen my standup. And that became a thing. I started giving talks to help scientists be better public communicators. So all of that is how I ended up in Raleigh. It's like I was the science comedian. I was doing other science communication stuff. I was starting to become interested in the communication of science to the general audience. And and I'm the general audience because I'm not a scientist. Um, you seem like you have a, you're at a, a, a unique nexus, which is you. And it's the combination of your, your passions that you are really well versed in you. It, I mean, you just explained, right? Like you're in Raleigh and you've had this lifelong passion for science and for technology in a sense, particularly in this audio video technology, right? And film and television and uh, a real passion for humor and comedy. And you've been able to take those things and place them together in a kind of a, in a pot and um, alchemically bring them all together into what you're doing today. And because you are doing yeah. some really interesting things, um, in addition to comedy and speaking and that kind of thing, you've been talking to a lot of scientists over a lot of years. What? A, um, I, let, let me. Can I? I'm sorry to, to interrupt your flow, but the, the, the crucial piece. What happened is a a science museum here in Raleigh. I had always been a freelancer, but a science museum here in Raleigh was opening a brand new wing with a science communication emphasis, and they reached out to me people I knew. And I ended up moving to Raleigh to work at a science museum. And my job was to host talks by scientists and yeah. And to help them be better communicators. But there is this, I wish I had a, 
an image of this. Maybe I can send you an image. The, the, Daily, Plan- the uh, Daily Planet is this giant globe-shaped theater. So on the outside of this museum is a giant earth. Inside it, it's a theater. And I hosted talks by scientists. Uh, we did video stuff. I helped them be better communicators. So I moved from San Francisco to Raleigh. Whoever imagined yeah, moving to North Carolina? Really? To move like Superman's? Like exactly? Superman. Yeah, not really. I mean, they haven't. Yeah, you know, there's been no lawsuits or anything. But <laughs> um, but that was in 2012. I moved to Raleigh, and I did that for about four years. I still was doing other science communication stuff, and I blogged for Scientific American because again, I was getting more and more into the science communication world. So I still have all my comedy friends. But I wasn't in the nightclubs as much. Instead, I'm going to science conferences. And and then I worked at a museum with a research staff that I became very close with. And they were my colleagues and friends. And then I really got to know scientists because I was working with them like for four years on a daily basis. So not just going to a conference, but working with them. And I, so I learned so much more about scientists and their world. And then I quit just because there was other stuff I wanted to do. I had never seen it as my whole career to come work at this state museum. I saw how it fit in to my career. It was, it was an awesome experience I learned a lot and had just great times, made a lot of friends. But now there's other stuff I want to do in comedy and science and the science comedy, the science communication. So that's all to say that um, that also prepared me so that, yeah, where I am right now, the reason I mentioned the Steve Jobs thing is that my job now, comedy, science, science communication, um, and video skills like making science videos for time and for other people and interviewing scientists, all those things come together in what I'm doing now. So what, what is it? What is the, you, you, like you said, you've been interviewing lots of scientists and, and you're at a, at least I said, you're, you're kind of a nexus in a, in a certain, it's a, many of these things coming together. What is the Lindau Nobel laureate meeting? What is <laughs> so, the Lindau, it's L-I-N-D-A-U. It's this. It's a town in Germany. It's this little, like, maybe sort of medieval, quaint little tourist town in very southern Germany. It's really close to Zurich, Switzerland. In fact, I would fly into Zurich and take a train to get to Lindau. And it's mostly a little island. And for about 70 years, 70 years, the Lindau Nobel Laureate meeting has been going on. And it's grown to the extent that this is what it is. Every summer for about a week, they bring in a group of Nobel laureates, like 25, 30 Nobel laureates. And then they bring in like six or 700 young scientists from, from 80 plus countries. And the idea is they're there for a week of mentorship. It's called the Lindau Nobel Laureate Meeting, but it's really about it's not as much about the laureates as you would think. It's about mentoring the next generation. So for a week, each laureate gives one short half-hour talk. But it's not even just about the young scientists learning science from them. And when I say young scientists, there are some undergrads, there's some grad students, there's some postdocs. That's someone who's already gotten their PhD and it's an early career scientist. And they... uh 
there's meals. And at some conferences, if people go to a conference, a lot of times the most famous people, the rock stars of any conference aren't very accessible. Like they eat at their own table and you don't get to eat with them. This is, that's not even allowed here. At, at every meal, there's a placard on the tables and it'll have a laureate's name. And every laureate is sitting apart from each other and surrounded by young scientists. So at every meal, it's a laureate surrounded by uh, young scientists. And they ask them not just science questions, but work life. You know, they learn about everything about what it means to be a scientist, um, not just the science. And there are sessions and some of the young scientists get to present their research to other people and to laureates and get critiqued. Um, but it's just this amazing thing that, um, so here's the way my career works. I was asked to be part of a panel at a big science conference. It's called AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And I was on a panel about communicating science with humor. And I was on a panel and I also had about five or seven minutes at the podium where I demonstrated how I do my kind of humor that communicates science, but is also funny. And I, there was someone in the audience that I impressed, um, Countess Bettina Bernadotte, and her father had been one of the founders of this meeting in Lindau. And she invited me to perform at the upcoming meeting a few months later. So here's the other thing about the meeting. There are three Nobel Prizes in the sciences. There's a physics, a chemistry, and a medical medicine physiology. So the meetings rotate. That year was a physics meeting. And at the physics meeting, so it's like they invite 600 physicists from 80 countries. And, and most of the laureates are physicists that year. And I was invited to perform at the opening ceremony. So I did about 15, 20 minutes. The president of Austria was there. Some, a couple laureates that I recognized, um, including George Smoot, because I had seen him on Big Bang Theory. Um, Vint Cerf was there. He's called one of the founders of the internet because he and his partner developed the TCIP protocols that the internet is based on. And I recognized him. And Stephen Chu won a Nobel Prize in physics. Later, President Obama, <laughs> President Obama uh, chose him to be Secretary of Energy for four years under Obama. Um, so what happened is I performed at the meeting and then for fun, I went around interviewing scientists and they liked the way I was interviewing scientists. So I've been back now three or four more years and they hire me to interview their scientists. And I do live streaming interviews right onto their Facebook page and I do with the young scientists and then with the Nobel laureates, I sit them down and I interview them and I edit it later. So the, this meeting has been this every summer I go and I get to interview and hang out with a bunch of Nobel laureates and hundreds of scientists from all literally this year was going to be from a hundred countries. This year was going to be interdisciplinary. They'll do a physics, a chemistry, a biology, and they rotate, but every five years or so, it's all of the sciences. And there were going to be 70 Nobel laureates and a hundred countries 
uh, sending like six or 800 young scientists from like a hundred different countries. So you meet people from all over the world and they're all doing interesting. They're all, they've gone through a selection process. So they're all kind of extraordinary young scientists. Wow. That sounds like a, that's just a blast. I can tell from the, by the way you're talking. That you know. Yeah, I love it. I'm glad. And this year at the, um, I don't know when our interview is going to come out, but at the end of June, when the meeting would have been in person, I'm going to participate on either June 29th or June 30th online for the Lindau Nobel, lindaunobel.org might be the Lindau Nobel laureate meeting or I forget their domain. Um, they, uh, I'll, I'll be moderating some online stuff. Well, let me ask you this, Brian. You, you, you've been going there now for a while. Um, someone who I, I see, a science guy that I see out there is Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's someone that you know and have a relationship. You see someone that you know from being there at the, at the Lindau Nobel Laureate meeting? or is that No, 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 because he's not a Nobel Laureate. He's never been. It's like, it's very limited. It really is. It's not open to the public. Neil. Oh, okay. But Neil actually, I don't know how many years ago now, back when I was in San Francisco, he saw a video of me on YouTube and he went out of his way to look me up and find my email address. He found my website and emailed me to tell me I was funny. He just was just supportive. Hey, I saw some of your stuff and I, he quoted some stuff. And then I kept in touch with him as you would. <laughs> we had never met, but we were emailing and he invited me to do pieces for Star Talk Radio, his, his radio and podcast show. And every episode was themed. And again, we had never spoken. He would email me a theme. I would write a piece, record it, email him the MP3, and they'd put it in the show. He would do an intro. And so I contributed some little monologues, short monologues to Star Talk. And ultimately, eventually, we would meet. When I, in fact, it was here in Raleigh the first time I met him in person is that he was coming to speak. And so we met in person for the first time after we had already had a long relationship that was all email. I, I think that's a neat thing about our world is that I had been on his radio show numerous times uh -huh. and it was all done via email. I, I wrote and recorded my piece at home. I emailed him the file. They put it on the show. We had never spoken. And yet I had been on his show a bunch of times. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And now uh, he comes to Raleigh or the Durham. He comes here almost every year. And I've been in town almost every time. So I get to see him. And now I've interviewed him a couple of times. I did a long Skype interview with him once. And then one time I visited him at his office in New York. And we did a live stream to Facebook. That was fun. In fact, uh, for those that might see video, what's on the wall right behind me right there? Yeah. We were doing a live stream from his office and people were watching and Neil goes, what are these people doing? It's the middle of the afternoon. Shouldn't they be in school? Shouldn't they be at work? Why are they watching? And he goes, you know what? I'm going to write them a hall pass. So what this says is Brian Mallow live interview hall pass, and then it's dated and signed. So he wrote a hall pass and he held it up to the camera <laughs> so that people could screenshot shoot it. And um, that's, and, and I just, I thought, oh, that's a neat little piece. And I took it home and framed it because it's like, it's my little, 
It's my little Brian Mallow live interview hall pass. Man, when I was in high school, the hall pass was always something that I wanted to get so I could get the heck out of class. Right. Lots around in the hallway for a while and screw around for a while. Now, so you are, you've become over the years friends with Neil. And, you know, something I wanted to address with you is uh, I have a similar appreciation and, and fondness and love for, for science as well. Have you thought about like um, what might be sort of the science of comedy, the intersection of really brilliant science, like science, comedy? And tell me about that. Do you have over the years, you must have contemplated that. Well, I think that's interesting because, you know, it's like the comedy of science and the science of comedy. So uh, I like it because, you know, I have that kind of analytical mind. First of all, if you're a comedian, you have to learn something about the art and science of comedy, like how stuff works. But um, but then I'm also a science geek, so I'm really curious. Now, I know there are theories of humor, and I need to learn more about this, but I think it's a very mysterious thing. Like, what what theory of humor explains puns and slapstick? And, you know, there's like some humor. It's like, well, what's the connection between a pun, a, a play on words, and really slapstick humor? And other, like, there's, like, those things, like, seem like, what is humor? And, like, those two things don't even seem very alike. But um, I, did you what, do you? what did you mean? So I like thinking about this, and but but all comedians have to practice this to oh, some yes. extent because we have to figure out why it's like that joke isn't. Is there? How do I make this joke work better? And sometimes it's like, well, you know, an old comedy friend of mine, Ron White. The first time I worked with him, which was at a club in not only it was in New New Orleans, it was Metairie, which is and this was a long time ago. That was the the exact place where David Duke came from. Um, and I had this old joke about Zomfir, master of the pan flute, which he used to be a very common TV album you would see advertised. And I had this joke where I said, and here's how I used to say it. I'd go, you know, in the commercial, they only show Zomfir from the waist up because he actually is half goat. He's a mythological creature. And it worked okay, and, and Ron told me, so here's the science of comedy. Ron told me that I needed to remove one word from that sentence. I was saying he actually is half goat, and he said that actually, first of all, it's not necessary. He also thought it was telegraphing, like I was saying actually before I was getting to the half goat part, and that I was sort of telegraphing the joke. I was giving it away a little early. And he said, remove that word. And I did. And the joke worked better. So that I would just go, they only show him from the waist up because he is half goat. Like saying actually gives people a little more time to think about where you're going. But instead of you go, they only show him from the waist up because he is half goat. Um, boom, it hits you. And then that's the punchline. So um, that another example is an old joke I had about being on stage at a sports bar and there were a lot of dead animals on the wall, a lot of mounted heads. And I said, there's a lot of pressure on you to be, what would happen is I didn't sit down and work on the, on paper, on the writing. And every time I got to the punchline, I would always say, there's a lot of, I would set up this scene where I'm performing and there's just, it's a sports bar, but it's like the walls are dominated with dead animals mounted everywhere. And I would say, there's a lot of pressure on you to be funny when there's that many dead species on the wall already. Well, 
ending a joke with the word already, even and even it's not even just comedy writing. It's just bad writing in general. It's like the whole point of the the sentence is already over and like already needed to be moved. It's like there's a lot of pressure on it to be funny when there's already that many dead species on the wall. Like the punchline is that dead species on the wall. After you say that, you don't want to still be saying already. So that's that's like the science of comedy. It's like that that weakens and 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 again, communicating science and communicating humor and just communication in general. These are all just communication. So it seems a little weird that I even now advise scientists on how to communicate science. But the fact is, it's just communication. And I've been practicing succinct. It may not be obvious from this interview, but I've practiced succinct communication. As a comedian, you have to learn to get that right. Right. Well, there's a, there, is a, there is a structure that's used in stand-up comedy or comedy in general. It doesn't matter what the medium is, actually. It can be audio. It can be video. It can be live. There is a structure that's used regularly in comedy, and comedians, uh, what you do is you, you actually learn that, that shop talk, that argo, that lingo, it, because those terms are part of, the, part of what helps you to create the grammar of comedy, the structure of comedy, so that it's effective. And also, you know, like, you know, to me, one of the things is writing a joke is a bit like an experiment, right? You come up with a hypothesis. Your hypothesis is a bit like, this strikes me, I think this is a funny concept, a funny idea, a funny notion. Yeah. So then what you want to do is you want to actually test your hypothesis. In order to test your hypothesis, you've got to run an experiment. And the joke itself is actually like an experiment where what you do is you put together the experiment, you write the, you've got your premise, then you take your setup, and then you put your plug in your punchline and if you do it really well, then you want to extend the punchline with your tags, right? And I'm always, I've, for some reason, whenever I talk about tags, I'm reminded of that Monty Python bit where they were tagging things out like two, five, 10, 15 times just to the point of absurdity. And it would go from being funny to not funny to then funny again to not funny to funny. But that's to me is, is comedy is a kind of, uh, it, it has qualities that are similar to yeah. some where you've got your hypothesis, you run yep. your experiment, you structure the experiment, which is the joke, and then you also make sure that you are mindful of where the environment that you're in. Okay, is am I structuring this joke for Twitter, like Blaine Kapach, or am I structuring this joke for a, a film or a television program, or for an audio thing that I'm sending in to, to Neil? And, uh, and then you test it, right? You, you actually yeah. you test it, and then the interesting thing about it is it what gets really important for a comedian is it replicatable? So yes, yeah. as you go around the country to completely different groups of humans and and test it again. So you're looking at you know those essentially are the basic steps of scientific method where you've got a hypothesis and then you put, you construct your experiment, you test yeah. the experiment, and then you actually bring it out to the wider community and you you do it over and over again to replicate it and. I've found that, you know, like for me, when I write a good joke um, and when I can replicate it, that's really something. And then, of course, there are times where I have uh, watched other people do my material or have given my material away to other people. And that, too, is a bit like 
well, okay, I want you to go run the test and see if it's if it can be re- replicatable. And I, I all of a sudden, one of your old punchlines that I really that I remember and loved. It was about, I guess, you know, we both talked about some about decriminalization of drugs, and you had a joke about marijuana be about how it's been used for so many thousands of years and you go and you would say i don't remember the exact setup but i remember that it was basically about cave paintings and it's like like these earliest humans they were painting their walls with pictures of food and you go and and you but i just remember the punchline you've got to be a high kind of hungry to go after a mastodon with a stick <laughs> do you remember that i i know that that is the precise sentence like i remember that that punchline even if i don't remember yeah, the setup that's, completely. that's the other thing is that when you when you are when you're you know wordsmithing or when you're crafting you could say that a totally different way and it wouldn't have the same impact yeah there's a there's a kind of there's a specific kind of poetry or a poetry comedy is a kind of poetry in in itself too right yeah yeah that phrase a high kind of hungry is not a typical phrase it sticks out it it grabs your attention and then the minimization to go after amazon with a stick or yeah and woolly mammoth with a stick and like i was saying before about like sentence structure if you had said uh to go after a mastodon with a stick, you've got to be pretty stoned. Or something. it's like it just right. it wouldn't it like the funny part is is saving that going after a mastodon with a stick. And there's also we also know that some words like the punchiness of that word stick is helpful. Right. And you never some of this it's hard to predict or like, but we get a feel for for, for what works. And you know, similarly, since I am a comedian, sometimes telling scientists how to communicate with the public. Um, who am I to tell them? Well, I draw a lot of lessons from, from comedy. And I also think that there's other similarities. Like, um, we are always looking for fresh... We start with an observation. I like to quote the Isaac Asimov uh, line um, that uh, the most exciting phrase to hear in science the one that heralds new discoveries is not Eureka, but that's funny. And I like it because that's how a joke starts and it's how a scientific observation starts. You see something and you go, that's funny. What is it? And you have to figure out how do I express that and make it funny? I I see some little thing and I know there's something funny about it and I have to find a way to communicate that to you. And And also, if it's already been well covered by other comedians, it's not of use to me. And if this research has already been done by other scientists, they're always looking for original scholarship. So are we. And, and, a, and a, a joke has a setup and a punchline. And the setup has to have everything in it that you need to appreciate the punchline. But, and this is what I tell the scientists, just as important, it can't have any extra extraneous stuff. Because that doesn't add to it. It waters it down. So scientists sometimes put too much information in their talks. And adding more information does not help. Like you think you're helping by adding more interesting information. And sometimes comedians have a joke and they start adding more to it. And it doesn't actually improve the joke. It ruins it. You want everything you need, but nothing more. Right. What's the Einstein quote where something must be uh, simple as possible, but no, but sim- no simpler or something like that. Yeah. Like that I used to, 
I, I agree. You, you, in comedy, it's, well, it goes back to that other, that other quote, which I believe is Shakespeare, which is brevity is the soul of wit. That's the thing for me is that, that I love the performing arts and the arts in general. And there's always there to me, the arts and sciences are not really that far apart from one another in so many ways. If you go and look at, um, I have a book that I read uh, many years ago by uh, the philosopher Ken Wilber, and it's called Quantum Questions. And it's such an interesting book because in that particular book, um, he uh, finds passages from the writings of world-renowned scientists, uh, particularly a lot of these physicists, quantum scientists, and that sort of thing. And you can see that they have this truly artistic side to them, almost some of them, almost a mystical side to them. And um, uh, Niels Bohr is one of them. And I mean, the list goes on in the book. But I find that the arts and sciences are not that far, not as far apart as we are often led to believe. Another Einstein quote, um, imagination is more important than knowledge. Um, You know, sometimes people think, I've mistakenly, I will not say this again. When I talk about the path, I chose, I didn't choose, I was thinking of becoming a scientist. Um, one way that I humorously say it now is I go, I thought about becoming a scientist, but apparently that's not enough. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you have to actually take the classes and do a, I just thought about becoming a scientist that doesn't do it. Um, but I thought about it, but I instead, and one time on stage, I accidentally said, I thought about becoming a scientist, but I instead chose, uh, I wanted to take a more creative feel. It's like, that's terribly misspeaking scientists are very creative there's a lot of creative thinking like to be a scientist like einstein he imagined some stuff that no one else had imagination and creativity are definitely so what i really what i meant to say is i chose the arts i didn't take the science path i chose the arts path but that is not to say that science is not about creativity and imagination and good writing and communicating because you have to not only make observations and learn things and, and you have to invent some of the creativity is like you have a hypothesis, like you said, how can I come up with an experiment to test it? Okay. I have a hypothesis. How do I test it? It's all about creative thinking. So you're right. There's huge overlaps. And also Bad stereotypes about scientists. In my experience now, scientists are way more knowledgeable about other fields outside of science, whether it's the arts, history, philosophy. Scientists tend to be knowledgeable about that other stuff way more than those other people are knowledgeable about science. Like, Uh, it's acceptable in our culture to be like, well, I don't know much about science, but it's like not as acceptable to, to say things like, well, I don't know much about history or, or good writing or literature, you know? Yeah. Well, Brian, you know what? I, I want to ask you, um, this has been such a lot of fun talking to you about science and comedy today and how they, how they, how they actually are different, yet how they converge as well. You're doing such really interesting work I want to, I know there's, there's probably some folks who would like to know more about you if they want to find you somewhere on the web. Um, where can you be found? Where can you be tracked down for more of your, your uh, science comedian missives? 
Yeah, I'm pretty easy with the phrase science comedian. You can't miss me. You can forget my name, but science comedian. Um, I My website has been untouched for years, but sciencecomedian.com. I'm going to do something about that. But um, I'm on Instagram and YouTube and Twitter and Facebook. And um, I'm going to be more, you'll be able to find more stuff uh, on Instagram and YouTube. You know, since we are no longer doing personal appearances, since that was another day, another age, a very dark time when people used to gather in person to listen to people like us. um, I'm lucky that I have these video skills and these interviewing skills. So for an organization called Sigma Xi, that's XI.org, I've been interviewing virologists. And these aren't funny interviews. These are just interviewing virologists and presenting information. Um, I edit them. I, I interview them like this, and then I edit them and, and put them out. And I'm going to be doing more live streaming, and it'll be on those chan- my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash science comedian. And uh, you can look for me on Twitter and Instagram, at science comedian. Brian Mallow, thank you so much for being here today. I am Robert. Thank you. And you've been listening to The Robert Barham Show. This has been another episode, and I've been talking to my very good friend, as I said, Brian Mallow, the science comedian. You and I will be talking again, I hope. I hope that you'll come back on the show. And I'm going to put a little uh, a little lead in there. When you come back again, I want us to talk about push-ups of all things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. I feel like we could have had a, a better conversation than the conversation we had, maybe. I don't know. I love the conversation for today. But Good. we'll definitely get into the, the art and science of push-ups. Brian, thanks a lot. Thank again, you, Doc. Barham. We'll see you soon. <laughs>